Colossians 3.16, which we studied through Colossians as we began um, the ministry here last year. Um, we studied all the way through the book of Colossians. Paul wrote this in, in that passage in 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Letting the words of Jesus dwell in us richly. It's something that we can read in Scripture and be like, oh yeah, mm, amen, you know, and agree with. But is that something that we do? Do we read the Word of God, or if you use the Dwell app, not a shameless plug, it's just for you guys to use, you know, but like if, if you're listening or if you're reading the Word of God, do you dwell on it? Is it something that you meditate on? Is it something that you soak in? Um, because we've talked about this a lot. It, it's, it's just like a sponge. Whatever you soak in, when you get squeezed, you're going to find out what's in there, Right? You can lay a sponge anywhere in the house, and in my house, depending on where that sponge has been, I may not want to touch it, you know, especially when we had babies everywhere in the house. It's like, I don't want to know what that was. Amen, sister. Am I right? You know, but like, I don't even want to know. I'm like, you know, we asked the question before when you were a single person or whatever, it's like, I know where everything in the house is, but when you pick up a mysterious sponge in your house and you have children running around, where was this? What was this used for? You know, and the gross way to find out is... That's our hearts. We will know what we have been soaking in, what we've been marinating in, what we've been dwelling upon when through the testing of our faith, that character that we've been building comes squeezing out of that sponge. How well do we do when that process starts? When you get squeezed, what comes out? And so we want the word of Christ to dwell richly within us. We want to meditate on it. We want to be, that to be the thing that we are soaking in so that when we go through trials, not if, when we go through trials, when we go through difficulties, we will show the light of Christ through those trials and through that situation. As James talks about in James chapter 1, he says, count it all joy when you go through various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. When you go through those trials, we can have joy because we recognize that God is maturing us in those times. So welcome to Maturity 101, the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, that if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you think that it's something that you can put on, you're wrong. Because Jesus is going to begin in the heart and everything that comes out of our lives has to come from the outflowing of our heart. And so the truths that we must receive, we must receive heart deep. Because when we get squeezed in life, we want the things that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount to come out of us. We want those things to be (laughs) extra. (laughs) We'll wait for it. Well, let's just listen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just a bible app it's all good it's the word of god it's just a different passage so we need to dwell on this um but you guys what we're embarking upon this morning is perhaps the most difficult teaching assignment i've ever undertaken um and a lot of that has to do with the approach but i, I think that the majority of it is what the text is The Sermon on the Mount is not an easy passage of Scripture for us to face. So as we turn together to Matthew chapter 5, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it. If you use a digital device, go right ahead, open up your app, whatever you use, to Matthew chapter 5. Here's the setting of what we're going to be talking about for quite a while. This is not going to be an overview study. We're not going to take a very broad approach to this. My goal is for this to be what you would call a deep dive. 
I want our study in the Sermon on the Mount to be something that we are taking our time through and looking at these individual things on a very deep and um, exploratory basis. So following the temptation of Jesus that you remember, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 4, John the Baptist is thrown into prison. We know that he'll be beheaded eventually. He was thrown into prison because of his um, open rebuke of Herod, who took his brother's wife. And John the Baptist was like, whoa, not cool. And it landed him in jail. And so Jesus at this point, after John's arrest, has withdrawn into the region of Galilee, which if you know the area of Israel, this is the northern region, and it's much more like here than it would be the rest of Israel. If you're in the rest of Israel, there's deserts and there's different types. There's all types of terrain there. But I would compare the region of Galilee much more to our area than I would to any other area in Israel comparing here. And so Jesus has withdrawn into this area around the lake of Galilee in northern Israel. And there's lots of communities around the lake. If you visited there, you can see a lot of ruins in that area, third century, first century synagogues. And these are synagogues that Jesus would begin teaching in at that time. And so as Jesus is going around and teaching in this area, people are coming out. He's teaching. He's teaching with authority and power, and he starts healing people. He starts healing people. He starts uh, healing them of their sicknesses or their physical infirmities, if you like to read the King James. And so he's healing people of all these things. So what happens if you are preaching powerfully and now people are getting healed? What, what's going to happen as a byproduct of that? Crowds. Large crowds are starting to show up. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And so the crowds are starting to gather. And Jesus, living in Capernaum, there on the Lake of Galilee, He's preaching repentance. It's interesting. We'll talk about it in a minute a little bit more. But Jesus, it says in chapter 4, is preaching repentance, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. And so he's calling people to repent of their sin. In fact, Jesus was here at that time to inaugurate the coming kingdom. He was telling the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. It's here. And he's inaugurating that coming kingdom by his very presence. It was as Jesus was preaching the message of repentance that the first of the disciples are called from this region. We have Andrew and Peter, James and John, the brothers who were out there fishing, and Jesus called them uh, to follow him. And as large crowds begin to follow, Jesus deliberately goes up onto the mountain to teach. Now, there's some important symbolism for us to recognize here. Number one, the practicality of teaching on this, this probably a plateau of one of the hilltops is going to be advantageous for his volume and for those types of things as he teaches a larger crowd. But what's interesting about this is that it's very symbolic of Moses receiving the law of God on Mount Sinai as Jesus is going to expound on the law of Moses and take it further. Jesus isn't going to stop at delivering Moses' law to them. In fact, he's going to say, you've heard it said six different times in chapter 5. And he's going to say, but I say to you this. He expounds on the law and he goes beyond what the law was known to teach the people. And so we see a parallel of Jesus and Moses here as Jesus goes up onto the mountain and begins to teach. The traditional site, most would believe, is the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. There's a couple places you could look at, but the traditional site is there. Could be right. You know, some people just like the the layout of the land, so they're like, let's just build a little chapel here and call this the spot. Um, it's It could be, totally could be, but there's a couple locations. Regardless, it is on the shores of Galilee, a beautiful setting if you've been there. It's unbelievably gorgeous. I know you guys have been there. It's I keep looking at the Kaczynskis. I'm like, am I right? And they're like, it's gorgeous. It's awesome. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known of Jesus' teachings. 
it's quite possibly the least understood, and I personally believe it's the least obeyed. And the reason I say that is because of how difficult it is. It's so difficult that there's three primary approaches, and I'm not going to get into the three primary approaches and why people believe this, but I'll say this. Some people even doubt that it's for today, that it's something that we should live, that it's something that we should do. In fact, they say this is Jesus just basically giving us a picture of what his kingdom eventually will look like because there's no possible way that sinful human beings could ever do this. It's impossible. Why do they call it impossible? Well, because... Jesus says, be perfect in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, be perfect. And he says that he's here to fulfill the law. And he challenges us to be perfect as God is perfect. By the way, that's a very Old Testament-based truth. And Peter agreed with Jesus later on when he wrote his letter in 1 Peter, when he said the command is be holy as he is holy. He's not telling them like, okay, but seriously, folks. You know, Jesus wasn't winking at his disciples when he said these things. When we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't like, so be perfect. Right? Not really. I'm just saying it to freak people out. That's not how Jesus worked. He meant it. Now it's there for us to wrestle with and say, how? How do I do this? How do I live this way? John Stott said that within this sermon, Jesus gives us a description of what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. Ah, we're touching on the truth a little bit. Just just scratching the surface. When the church and when people come under the gracious rule of God, these things are possible. Jesus, as he teaches, is going to strip us of every form of false piety. Every form of I can get this done on my own. He's going to show us his ability to fulfill the law in chapter 5, verse 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law of prophets. He says, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. And again, in chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I point out those two passages because here at the onset, we have to recognize something. And I hope that we're together for the majority of this. If you miss any, they're all podcasted. They're all YouTube. But hopefully we stay together through this process. And we need to talk about this at the very front We cannot do this apart from his empowering. We cannot do what Jesus is going to command his followers to do apart from his empowering. If you're going to try and do this on your own, you will fail. The task is so beyond our own ability and reach as Jesus not only expands and expounds on the Old Testament law and goes beyond it, but Jesus, as he preaches, is going to call us to practice these things not only in the time the time period that he was living in but ever afterwards these are things that we should be doing these are things that we should be fulfilling god's commands with and yet again i'll say it we ask ourselves how as christians i think we understand that let me just take a pause real quick when we ask that question how what do you what's your response like how am i going to do what god has told me to do what's the how christian how hmm Through him, by the power of Holy Spirit within, right? Are you reliant on the Holy Spirit for daily living? Are you relying on the Holy Spirit for everything you are doing from the moment you wake to the moment you go to sleep? That's where he's taking us. 
That's what God wants us to come to. That's what Jesus is going to call us to because of this message. He's going to say, you have to rely on God's empowering because otherwise it doesn't get done. What Jesus preaches is for now. It was for that time and it's for our time. To put his sermon on the Mount teachings beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's is to ignore the reality of man's sin. What does that mean? It means that in order for these things to become realities in your life, you have to come broken and repentant to the Lord. You have to be born again. Jesus is not telling us, live like this and you'll become Christian. We're being told, if you're a Christian, you'll live like this. Because you're a Christian, you will live this way. Jesus died on the cross so that we could live the Sermon on the Mount in reality. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could have something to do on Sunday morning. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could say a prayer over your meal and not be smacked for it. Jesus died on the cross so that you could live the Sermon on the Mount in reality. That's where we're going. It's a tall task once we get into the text, but that is where we're going. And there's nothing that so leads us to the gospel of grace like this sermon. Nothing will make us more desperate for the grace of the gospel than this message because it draws us to our knees and shows us we are not worthy, but he loves us still. That we cannot accomplish this, but by his empowering, we can. I don't know about you guys, but that's inspiration when I look at my own effort. That encourages me when I look at how hard I've tried. How many of you have tried really hard to be good? Okay, like half of you. That's good. I know my crowd. <laughs> we should all be unanimous. How many of us have failed? Okay, also half. I'm just kidding. That's, that's most of us. It's just the reluctant ones. are like, dude, I didn't put on deodorant today. I don't know if I can get it up that high. If we don't believe in being born again, saved from our sin and becoming a new creation, as Scripture says we can, then we'll read the sermon with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. We're not going to have the right perspective if we don't believe in being born again. And so for those of you, for anyone who's listening online or hereafter, if you have not been born again, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's the only way that this is attainable, that's achievable, and it's not going to be of your own effort. It's going to be by grace through faith not of works. You can't boast about it. And Jesus died for all of us while we were still sinners so that we could be empowered to live this way. Sermon on the Mount is life and community as given to us in Christ Jesus through the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is life and community as given to us in Christ Jesus through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can do this empowered by him. Jesus begins his sermon with the Beatitudes. And most people, even outside of the church sphere, if they know something about Christianity, know what the Beatitudes are. And Beatitude is really simply translated just blessed. It's the word blessed or blessed. Martin Lloyd-Jones called the Beatitudes the delineation of the Christian man in his essential features and characteristics. Don't you love when old guys that preach use words like delineation? It means description. So it's the description of the Christian man in his essential features and characteristics. This is what Christian human beings should look like. The Beatitudes describes what disciples of Jesus are to be, 
understanding the spiritual qualities are given by him and the blessing given as a free gift from him, tasted now, consummated later. means we can taste these things now, we can experience them now. It's consummated later when Jesus returns. We receive inheritance in both earth and heaven, comfort, satisfaction, and mercy, the culmination of being sons and daughters of God right here. We also learn something about what God blesses. And this is very counterculture. In the Greek world, the poor man was shunned. In God's kingdom, the poor in spirit received the kingdom. You think about these things and the way the world looks at them. The world sees those who have money, power, good looks, higher education as being blessed in life. I see that I have none of those traits. But Jesus proclaims that the merciful, the peace, thanks, Ali. Jesus proclaims that the merciful, the peacemakers, the humble, and those who long for righteousness are blessed. In other words, being blessed by God is not often visible on the surface, but will reveal itself flowing from the transformation of heart outward through the character and features of his children. Here's what I'm getting at. Many, if not most, of the things that honor God are going to happen without us seeing them. It's going to be done in secret. You've heard it said when Jesus taught, he was like, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And all the kids in Sunday school are like, wait, what? <laughs> like, but we understand what that means, right? Keep it between you and the Lord. But we live in a time where we can promote so much about our goodness on the internet, in social media. Look what I did today, worshiping God right? Think about this. How much do we promote what we're doing for God rather than just doing it so quietly that no one even notices? It means that the good work of God that he's doing in our lives is not going to be us out there banging on a symbol. It's going to be him outworking through us in a way that glorifies him. So much of Christianity in America is about drawing attention to self about getting applause for self, about attention for people. It's light shows, it's fog machines, it's all these things like, ooh, ah, look at what we're doing. Aren't we spiritual? Are you having the experience that you want? We want you to have the experience that you want. Do you want to know what God wants for you by experience? Oh, I'm starting to preach. It's rising up inside of me. Do you want to know the experience that God wants you to have? To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Jesus wants you to follow him on the road to Calvary. He wants you to be ready to die. That's the experience that God wants you to have. Jesus was so into his disciples and his apostles having an experience that they all went to their death to glorify him. Are you ready to be stripped of everything? And to be like Job and say, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. He can take me to death, to the very, the very ridge, the very cusp of destruction, and I will trust him for that fall as well. You guys, that's the power of God. That's what he has called us to, because in those darkest of hours, we will have joy if we trust in him. I want to experience what Jesus did. And I... I hope I understand what that means. I hope I fully understand what that means. Bonhoeffer said it so well. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And some people are like, oh, yes. It's a great thing for some theologian to say, you know, how did Bonhoeffer go? 
hung by the Nazis for his faith. Bonhoeffer actually went with Jesus and died for him. Men and women of the church, are we ready to follow him to that extent? Blessings from God are not going to look like blessings in the world. And we, we mix up our terminology a lot, right? Nice sunny day out, hashtag blessed. You know? I don't know about you guys, but like, oh, that's stimulus, such a blessing. More. <laughs> More. Open the floodgates of heaven. That's not heaven. That's called debt and inflation. <laughs> it's called being bloated in a really bad way. It's basically the worst bloat ever. You just ate a Taco Bell. Like, it's not good, okay? But I'm not going to get into economics. You guys, think about it this way. What does God say is blessed in this world? And what do I consider blessings to truly be? Blessings from God are eternal. Kingdom of heaven, his comfort, his mercy, his family, even his rewards are fully understood and given in heaven. Now, are there good things here? Sure. But if, if I, let me just give an example. If I dial down my understanding of what God's blessings look like, and I'm like, so blessed by this sun today, how am I going to feel about God when it rains and I don't want it to? Right? What's your natural tendency? I'm not saying you'll take that to fruition, but what's your natural tendency? Oh, this is a curse. Right? This is the bad. Wait a minute. Is God giving both good and bad? God is always good. Now, he'll give us struggles, he'll give us trials, but if I don't rightly understand that his blessings have eternal value, then I'm going to misunderstand the things that I'm going through here. When there's not enough money, I'm going to think I'm doing something wrong. Now, could we be? Sure. But if you look at that, you're like, I don't, God, I haven't, the money's gone. God's like, trust in me. Follow me. He didn't pray, he didn't say to pray that make it rain in that way. <laughs> I mean, like, rain is good, but, you know, make it rain. Um, all the young people are like, we got you. But you guys, you understand that, like, he, he wants us to understand that his blessings are eternal and that we need to look at life on an eternal scale. And that what has value here in God's eyes will not necessarily have value in the world's eyes. And what's precious to him is not going to be precious to people who don't know him. And I want to ask us this question as well. Do we value things or do we hold things precious that God does not value? Do we hold things precious in this life that are not precious to him? Anything that's against him, anything sinful. Church, we have to own that. And we have to lay it down. So where does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount? Funny enough that that statement came out of my face just now. He calls us to empty ourselves. He calls us to start at empty. Check it out. We are actually going to get into the text. It's amazing, isn't it? Chapter 5, verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, as Jesus sits up there with this crowd around him, understand the word for disciples here used in the Greek isn't speaking of the 12. What it's talking about is talking about anyone who would be willing to listen to him teach. That's the usage of disciples in this context. It's anyone who's willing to listen to him teach. And as he begins to teach, Jesus opens with, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? 
What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Have we thought about that? Have we chewed on that a lot? Like, what, it, what is poverty or poor of spirit? What does that mean? It doesn't mean to be financially poor, that's for sure. It doesn't mean to be materially poor. I don't think it means to be impoverished in regard to spiritual awareness. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 deals with that. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, divine nature, have been as seen since the creation of the world. Being understood through what he is result, people are without excuse. Why read that text at a time like this? Because God has made it evident that he exists to all mankind, to all human beings. He has made it evident that he exists. This isn't a lack of spiritual awareness of like, is there a higher power? God has proven that there is through creation even. He has proven that he exists. To be poor in spirit doesn't mean to not understand that there is a God. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy. Being poor in spirit is to recognize and agree with God that I am spiritually unable to save myself from death. It's to agree with God that he is perfect and I am not. And through that agreement, we're offered healing through Jesus. By agreeing with him, you understand that is the act of repentance. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that I need God, that I need him to save me. And through that agreement, Jesus heals us. And so Jesus proclaims here on the hilltop as he's talking about these things that we must have, we must understand. He describes to us the deepest form of repentance, and that's poverty of spirit. It's the deepest form of repentance. And at that point, I, I, was, I, was, I was just chewing on this on my own. I was thinking about the old hymn, Rock of Ages. How many of you guys just sing Rock of Ages when you're a kid? I almost pulled it out this week. I was like, oh, I'm just going to spring it on the team. And, but it's weird rhythmically. It just would have thrown them for a loop probably. Someday. That's my commitment to you. Some, sometime during Sermon on the Mount, Rock of Ages is going to come out. Here's some of the words. And it's not rock and roll, by the way. It's, it's just Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Wretched to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. That is poverty of spirit. That is recognizing that I bring nothing to the table and God has brought salvation through Christ Jesus. Jesus is continuing the message of Matthew 4.17 prior to this where his words were repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is the message of repentance. And God says, blessed are those who have that repentance. They are blessed because those who repent before God in this way receive the kingdom. Repentance is not popular Repentance is not something as like, you didn't get, maybe you did, and if you did, rock on. If you got up this morning, you have to tell me later. If you got up this morning, it's like, boy, I really hope that we talk about repentance of sin because I have been doing some sinning and I need to hear about repentance. How many of us wake up and we're like, love to be convicted today. Just sounds like the best thing in the world. You know? I mean, like, I did all those things that nobody knows about. I love it if God just convicted me right now and made me feel like Garbo. 
You guys, how many of us think that? Yet what was the message of Jesus? Repent. What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent. What was the message of the prophets? Repent. What was the message of Moses? Repent. Repentance kind of has a powerful theme throughout scripture. And if you think repent is God calling you trash, it's not. It's God telling you what you need to do to be right with him. Because when we repent, he comes in and he heals. Remember, you're not going to heal yourself. So all I have to do is repent then I'm better. You're not going to make you better. You repent unto God and he heals you. But you recognize that an attitude and a posture of repentance is so essential to the Christian life that we are missing out on blessing because we're not repenting. And if you ever come to this church and you've been like, you know, it's been a good year and a half since Mike's preached about repentance, leave. Leave. If I stop preaching repentance, leave. Because I've stopped preaching the message of Jesus. I've stopped preaching the truth about what Jesus has said because I need to repent of my sin. And so do you. We must come to this place where we recognize that we have failed and that God is bigger than our failure. That God is able to heal us when we come to him broken, but he does not heal the prideful. Those who are like, don't need you. I got this covered. Don't worry about it. I'll see you in heaven. I'm going to get there on my own. You know what's funny? We chuckle and I chuckle inside at that. But think about this. How often is that our attitude? Well, I'm doing things better than that guy over there. Pride. Well, I'm better than I used to be. Pride. You should have seen. Just pride, okay? Just stop. Just stop. We aim to be poor in spirit so that he can fill. We start with an empty cup. We come as vessels cracked and broken, and we allow him to heal that and to pour the spirit within, and we let him work through it. We let him glorify his name. If I'm trying to fix myself, I'm going to glorify myself. If I let God fix me as I repent and am broken before him, then he will be the one that's glorified. How near is the kingdom to those who acknowledge that truth, that we have failed, that we need to repent? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, the New Testament writers will often refer to it as kingdom of heaven because they didn't want to use the name of God. It was so highly revered. That means kingdom of God. When they say the kingdom of heaven, they're talking about the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Eternal heavenly reward. To such and only such the kingdom of God is given. Don't play the short game, Christian. Don't play the short game. Don't play the short game for for blessings in the world's view. We do things in such a way so that God will bless us in the heavenly so that we are who he has called us to be. Jesus begins his sermon with the most counterculture statement possible. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, to the feeble, not the mighty, to the little children who are humble enough to accept it and not the mighty warriors. That is so counterculture. Everyone would have been like, what? I don't know how I hit that note, but like that's, that's where they just happen. But you guys understand, like, that's, that's the shock value. It's so counterculture. The Greek, the Greek culture totally rejected the poor. They were garbage to them. They rejected the poor. And that's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where God has value. Those who come to him 
with open hands. Isaiah 66 verses 1 through 2 is a powerful passage. If you've never done a deep dive into Isaiah, that'll take you a few years, but enjoy. It's a great time. It's fantastic. I remember I was in Bible college and um, I was a student of Jeff Gill, who was a, a teacher at that time, and he he attempted to do Isaiah in one semester. Oh, man. I think we got like halfway and we had a couple weeks left. He's like, okay, I'm sorry, guys. We're just going to have to put the pedal down. And he's like, all the way through the end. I was like, whoa, I didn't even. But he just like, it was so good. We're like, we just can't cover it all. Anyway, Isaiah's awesome. Isaiah 66 verses 1 through 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. We should like, I know you're all looking at the screen behind me like, don't look yet. No, like if, if you guys stop there, this is God saying, this is the kind of person I look at favorably. All of us should be like, yes, that's the person I want to be. The one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. How much of that looks like chest-pounding, attention-grabbing, prideful geriatrics to you? doesn't look like any of those things. In fact, sometimes we look at ourselves, and, and I know people that look at themselves, and they beat themselves down because they don't have the A-type personality up in front of people's skill set. I'm not saying that's a sin by any means, but some people will look at their lives and be like, I'm not that person. I must not be blessed by God. What does God value? Humility, submissiveness in spirit, and someone who trembles or reveres his word. That doesn't mean that A people are all sinners, by the way. Oh, well, hold on. Yes, I am. Um, what it means is, is that your personality is not a sinful personality. But we all have tendencies, don't we? And so for the A-types like myself, shh. And for people who are more introverted, it's okay. God loves you too, and he made you that way. And if, if you are naturally a quieter person... God will use you just as much as a loud person if you are humble and submissive and if you tremble at his word. Because this applies to all of us. God made us this way. And we can relax in that. So church, together, it doesn't matter what kind of personality you are, are we humble? Are we submissive or poor in spirit? It means Repentant. Are we repentant unto God? Do we place ourselves underneath saying, you are in charge? By the way, notice that's just us recognizing truth. That's just us recognizing God is in charge and we're just agreeing with him. That's why I said the acknowledge part of that. So being poor in spirit is to acknowledge and agree with God. You aren't changing whether he's in charge or not. You're just agreeing with him that he is. You're resting in truth. That's obedience. And then do we revere or tremble at his word. Is God's word of high value to you? Is it the ultimate authority? Or do you throw some parts out that you don't like? Do I get rid of things that I don't want to hear and obey the things that I like? Hey, we all are prone to, you know, different styles here. We're all prone to like different parts of the Bible. Like I really like the parts about justice. It's good. What parts don't you like? Mercy. 
I mean, like, I don't, I don't know anyone to be like, I don't like mercy. But like, you think about this, like, a lot of times, like, I just want justice. I want what's right. I want. The, there's, there's those types of personalities. Then there's people like, I just love the grace of God. I just love the mercy. <laughs> I love the mercy of God. Don't you love how merciful he is? Like, he's also just. So I got, I opposites attract. A lot of times you find in couples, like, there's one of each of these. So I was like, all the time, but they, they're like looking from the other side. The idea is to come together and realize that God made you for each other and that all these things are tied up in God's character. He is both just and merciful. He's both gracious and righteous. God is all of these things. He's holy and he's loving. You know, that's the part that's hard for us. Like, can't we just deal? It's easier to understand God if I try and separate those things. No, he's all of it in one. And so when we come to God, we recognize that his word speaks to all of these issues. And do we let that be the ultimate authority of how we live, of how I live out my life? This is heart deep. Poverty of spirit is heart deep. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. He's not talking about the thump thump, right? He's not talking about, he's not talking about that heart. He says what is inside the, the soul. This is where life comes from. Are you born again inside? It's not a jacket you wear. It's a heart transplant. It's a new man. It's a new woman. We have to remind ourselves, as Paul wrote in Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I'll tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. That one was for me. You guys... When David came, or sorry, when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, and we know that David would end up being that man, do you realize that David wasn't invited to the party? Never strike you as odd. Bring me the sons of Jesse. Here they are. Where's David? He's in the fields. Why is David in the fields? So insignificant that he wasn't considered as a possibility to come see Samuel the prophet, right? And Samuel shows up like you and I, Loving God, just serving him, doing what he's asked. And he looks at the most eligible bachelor in the room, right? I don't know his bachelor, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. He's like, wow, Eliab. And God's like, cool your jets, dude. Right? Calm down. He goes, he's not the one. And, and, and Samuel's like, surely the Lord's anointed is here. Look at Eliab. I mean, he must have really been hunky, right? Gals would have been impressed, I'm, I'm sure. And so... God tells Samuel what? Do you guys remember the story? What does he tell him? He says, you are looking at him as a man looks at him, but God doesn't see the or respect the outward appearance for God looks at the heart. Which is why God chose the one who was out in the field with the sheep, tending the flocks instead of the one who looked the most manly in the room. Poor in spirit may create a reality in our physical lives as we'll get deeper and deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. It may create a reality in our physical lives that doesn't look impressive in the world. But this is where Jesus says we start. This is, these are the ones who are blessed, those who submit heart to God, those who submit their lives to him in this way. I just want to challenge every single one of us to chew on this this week and to memorize it. It's easy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Um, memorize the Beatitudes as we go through them. We're going one by one. I'm not taking any of these in chunks. We're going to go one by one and talk about them in depth. And it won't get boring, I promise. I won't even have to tap dance. 
you guys, <laughs> thank God. <laughs> but you guys, this, this is what God has called us to. This is where Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We don't want anything to do with getting ourselves together on our own or dressing ourselves up to be something that we're not. Rather, we see the grace and salvation offered by Jesus to raise from the dead those who are poor in spirit, to fill hearts that come to him empty and expectant. And we'll see where he goes next as we continue in verse 4 next week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your sermon on the mount. It's so much more than a grouping of words. Lord, it was a way to live. It was lifestyle. And so, Jesus, as we submit ourselves and surrender to you, I pray, Lord, that every single one of us would be so bold as to come before you at some point today. Lord, maybe it's later on this afternoon. Maybe it's this evening. And just get quiet in a room. Read this passage Chew on it, marinate in it a little bit, and Lord, ask you to fill us. As we come and recognize that we have failed, that we have fallen, that we are people who have sinned, and yet you love us, yet you came, Jesus, and spoke these words for us to hear and to receive so that we could be righteous. You didn't cease to talk about these things. In fact, you backed up, Lord, what you, what you said by going to the cross. And so we just want to take the opportunity to thank you for that, to worship you. And, and I just want to encourage you, churches, let's keep our heads bowed. Just take a moment to hear the words of Jesus in your heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit the kingdom of heaven is theirs and then we'll worship